0: Writer and editor Scott Alley grew up in Ipswich, Massachusetts, a town that legendary horror author H.P. Lovecraft used it in his stories. So it's not strange for Lovecraft's writing to influence Alley's work. As senior managing editor of Dark Horse Comics, Scott edits some of the most established and also some of the darker properties that Dark Horse publishes. Everything from Hellboy and Buffy the Vampire Slayer to Zombie World and the Dark Horse books of hauntings, monsters, and witchcraft. Scott pulls double duties as well having written everything from Star Wars Empire, The Scorpion King, The Devil's Footprints, and many other comics. We talked to Scott about how he got a start in the industry, the submission process at Dark Horse, and writing prose versus writing for the comic book medium. All that and more as Scott Alley joins us on the Scripts and Scribes podcast right now. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga, and today I'm joined by Dark Horse Comics uh, editor, Scott Alley. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks. Thank you. Um, First off, can you describe a little bit about what your position of senior managing editor at Dark Horse entails? I mean, what are your day-to-day responsibilities? Uh, What is your average day like?
1: Uh, it it varies a lot these days. I am locked in meetings a really good part of the day. Um, it, you know, uh, I, I it feels like I'm always either in a scheduled meeting, or an impromptu meeting, or just like a one on one consult with another editor. Um, I, I to some degree, I kind of co manage the department with uh, Mike Richardson, the publisher of the company, and Davey Estrada, um, the managing editor or the editorial director. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, management stuff and just uh, sort of working with other editors on their stuff, um, being in these meetings, being in marketing meetings, all that kind of thing. Uh, most every day, uh, i I'm on the phone with Mike Mignola for a while, maybe phone calls with some other guys, but usually most stuff, most of my interactions with Mike talent is uh, handled through email these days, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but uh, but Mignola and I correspond mostly by phone Um I, I love it if during the day I can read a script but usually I don't I, I usually I can't make it all the way through a 22 page script in
2: mm-hmm. the course
1: of a day because I'm so busy jumping from one thing to another so my script reading and a lot of that more the real editing happens more at home at night um because it's a, you know either that or on my lunch break because I ask somebody is coming to talk to me about something other than the books I'm editing
0: mm-hmm and what are the biggest challenges you face as an editor? Are they more creative, or are they more business oriented?
1: Um, you know, they're mostly they're time oriented, uh-huh. but um, but I would say the biggest I don't know the biggest challenges are the creative ones. The business stuff is just the the the, the stuff you got to do every day to keep the trains running. Right. But um, but finding the time to do all of it is the hardest thing for me. And then the most, you know, sort of engaging problem is is the creative stuff, you know, finding the right people to work on the books, getting the stories to really sing, um, you know, making people turn their stuff in on time and, and, and scheduling, you know. It's just like with a lot of different creators working on a lot of different monthly comics, um, there's a tremendous amount of juggling going on mm-hmm. to make sure the books actually keep coming out. And because of the nature of our publishing, with you know, a lot of monthly titles, um, and a, and a lot of different artists and writers to call upon. You just got to be constantly creative about how you, um, you know, how you schedule. Scheduling is this like fascinating math problem to me because I think a lot of people treat scheduling in a, in a like, in a non-scientific way that, you know, you, you Scheduling involves a lot of hopes, and, and it shouldn't. like It shouldn't be aspirational. Scheduling should just be, um, this is what I know a person can do. Mm-hmm. This is what I know he can do without killing himself. Let's schedule it that way, rather than scheduling like, well, maybe if the stars align, <laughs> if everybody works their damnedest, maybe they can get the book out by then. Let's shoot for that, and then if there's heavy winds one day we miss by a month, it's like, no, let's let's, um, schedule more reliably and not make, you know, not make everything this screaming nightmare of, um, <laughs> if we fall behind by five minutes, we're going to snowball into hell. Right. Um, but yeah, so, so approaching scheduling from a kind of scientific way and making it, um, you know, making it more reliable, uh, is one of the big challenges and one of the real time consuming parts of the job. Um, that's, that's creative in a way because you're dealing entirely with your creative team, creative in a way because you're problem solving, but also like very mathematical at heart.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how much lead time do you have on most monthly books? I mean, how far ahead are you?
1: There, there's no most. I mean, it varies a lot. It it has everything to do. Mostly it relies on the penciler, mostly the scheduling um hinges on the penciler because in general the penciler is going to be the slowest part of the process. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, depending on how much you know about comics, you've got a you've got a writer, you've got a penciler, you've got an inker, maybe the penciler and inker are the same guy. You've got a colorist and in many cases not not most, but there's a number of cases for me where the penciler, inker and colorist are all the same person.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then you've got a letterer and if one person is doing all or most of that, then it can take, you know, it can easily take like three months to do a comic.
2: Um,
1: If one, if a different person is doing each step as, as is the case with say Buffy the vampire slayer, um, which is my, my most highest selling monthly book. Mm -hmm. um, You know, with that book, it's a different person doing each part of the job. The penciler, If the book has to come out monthly everybody needs to be able to do their work in four weeks except no penciler these days can really do a book in four weeks hardly any Mm -hmm. so my penciler on buffy can do a book in say five or six weeks that means that we've got to keep this constant waterfall of him working trying to stay on top of deadlines and knowing that at some point you're going to need a fill-in artist to jump in because it takes six weeks to pencil a book You can't do it monthly unless another penciler jumps in at some point. So um, the lead time on, say, Buffy, it it varies every issue because if if we need the artist on Buffy, say, to do five issues in a row, while all five issues have to come out monthly, that means the fifth issue has to be ready to come out on time. So the fourth one needs to be done, you know, if the fifth issue comes out, just by the skin of its teeth right on the date you got to schedule the fourth one that much earlier the third one that much earlier so the lead time on the first issue might be you might be turning in a script a year before the com- before the comic comes out and in the fifth issue the script might not be coming in until like you know 4 months before the comic comes out Right, because right. of the time the penciler needs, because of the varying amount of time that the penciler needs.
0: Right, right. Um, uh, now, at, at Dark Horse, you do a lot of creator-owned properties, stuff like Nexus and, and Gru, uh, but you also do a lot of adaptations of, of major film, television, franchise properties, like Star Wars, Buffy, uh, which you had mentioned, Aliens. Um, editorially speaking... Uh, what is the difference um, in terms of what you're able to do with it, how much creative freedom you have, things like that?
1: Um, you know, it, it varies a lot, but but for the most part, you know, whether it's licensed or creator-owned. Um, for the most part, the stuff that we publish is owned and controlled by somebody other than dark horse, mm-hmm. you know, dark horse owns some store, some stuff like ghost and the mask and, and a bunch of other characters. But the majority of what I own, I mean, work on is either owned by, you know, Mike Mignola or mm-hmm. 20th century Fox, you know? So, um, so in terms of my leeway, you know, I'm, I'm just sort of like the guy in the middle spin in the plates and try to keep it all going. <laughs> like I don't have any real control or 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 ultimate decision-making power. Like whatever decisions I make on Hellboy are subject to Mignola. Whatever decisions mm-hmm. I make on Buffy are subject to Joss and Fox. Um, the The difference is that on a project like Hellboy, the guy who created it, the guy who understands it inarguably better than anybody in the world, he has the final say and mm-hmm. I'm working directly with him. Um, similarly, with Buffy, um, Fox has a really light touch, and they let Joss do pretty much what he wants. So while Fox is owned by, I mean, while Buffy is owned by Fox and Hellboy is owned by Mike, um, in both cases, the guy who created it has the final say over what we do, which which is great. So you've got right. somebody who really intimately understands the project, making the big calls, making the big decisions. Mm-hmm. There are other licenses where. Um, the people who you know the people who created it um the people who really understand it and are at the heart of it um are are dead or are in some other way you know divorced from the project mm-hmm. um, think of you know Dan Harmon on community his recent sure. I mean that's a topical reference but um you know uh it, it's very nice when you're working on a project where the person who created it and has you know, has the greatest insight into it, is intimately involved, and, you know, you know, the best position is, is when that person has control over it. So um, so that's that, to me, mm-hmm. feels like the biggest difference between one kind of project and another. Um, if the people that really get it are the people making the calls, then creatively you're in a really good place. If, um, if you're dealing with people who don't have that deep connection to the source material, um, you know, it, it's a different kind of roadblock.
0: Right, right. Um, now, in addition to being uh, senior managing editor at Dark Horse, uh, you've also done a lot of writing uh, in your career as well. Now, if you're doing both, do you have to? I mean, it sounds like you even edit in your your downtime, your your lunch break, and at night. Um, how would you find time for writing a book when you? have to use your off hours to edit books even
1: yeah i just like i I really love making comics like Uh i'm really lucky to have this job and um and it's the you know it's it's one of the greatest sources of joy for me so i just do it kind of all the time um it was funny this morning um i was getting my kid ready for school and i needed him to get some homework done while he was eating breakfast and he was sitting there uh writing out these sentences that he had to write out he's seven years old and I was um, I was going over a script, so we were you know we were getting ready for breakfast we were getting ready for school eating breakfast and doing our homework um, together and that was, that was fun and that was cool and yeah it, for me working on comics just is great all the time mm-hmm. and so um, so I stay up late and I write a script or I edit a script or I get notes written on pencils or something and I, I, I juggle it real close you know i mean it, it, there's not a lot of hard lines between my editing and my writing the one exception being that i don't work on scripts or i don't work on anything i'm writing um in the office mm-hmm. you know like uh, like all that is reserved for nighttime but it's kind of an arbitrary delineation because it's like i spend 8 hours in the office but then i might spend 4 more hours at home working does it really matter where I do one thing or the other? But it right. just feels clean to to have a little bit of delineation there. Um, and, you know, like in terms of my family, my family understands how important it all is to me. And they, um, you know, they they know that the writing is the stuff that I'm going to be really passionate about doing and, and making space and time for me mm-hmm. to do that at home. Um, whereas if I'm sitting there, you know, going over schedules at home when I should be spending family time, that's probably a little bit more annoying to everybody.
0: Right. Um, now, how did you get your start in the industry, in the comic book industry?
1: Well, um, it, it, I, uh, you know, I want to go back only as far as I have to, but I feel like I, I it, goes, <laughs> it goes back really to college. When I start, when I was in college, mm-hmm. I, um, I loved writing and I loved drawing and I, I loved comics and I loved making comics, but in terms of school I saw writing and drawing as very, very separate. But I had this advisor named Dr. Smart um, who was like a comic book character with a comic book name. And he um, he encouraged me to create a uh, independent my own major in comics. And so that was a turning point for me. Like when, when Bob helped me design my major to be comics, mm-hmm. um, it helped me think of it in a more career-oriented way. And at the same time, in college, some friends and I had revived uh, the publishing group, the the publishing society on campus that had, had disappeared a few years earlier. And I found that in doing that, like, that was where I really thrived. I loved putting a project together. I loved being a project manager, juggling a lot of different things, and putting something creative together from the ground up. And um, I really dug it. So when I left college, I knew – I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to try to get involved in publishing. I didn't really understand it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything practical about the world, but I knew I wanted to get into publishing. And, um, you know, to skip the the middle part, I did get a job at Glimmer Train Press mm-hmm. as an assistant editor um, working on a literary magazine, which was a blast. And it was an incredible opportunity, a great experience, um, really an important – Thing for me, um, so much so that I still work with them you know um, twenty one years later but uh, but I got a job as an assistant editor with them, but ultimately they didn 't need a full staff, and so they reduced me to freelance work so i 've continued to work freelance for them ever since, but I found myself jobless with a bunch of savings because they paid really well
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I had a lot of money in the bank. Um, and I said, okay, well, I'm jobless. I'm going to focus on self-publishing. So I self-published my own comics for a while in the early 90s. And I loved that more than everything, anything I've ever done because I, I wrote, I drew, and I did all the business. And I had total control over the whole project. Mm-hmm. And I lost a tremendous amount of money. <laughs> but I really did it my way. And I really figured out a lot of my aesthetics by um, having the full weight of the thing on me. And around the time that I was completely running out of savings, I I was getting to know the people at Dark Horse because I was publishing a book and living in the same town as Dark Horse. So I just started making connections naturally.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they were looking for a, a low-level, entry-level assistant editor, and I was like, I am broke. This would be really fun. So I took the job and wound up working with Mignola, which was a real boon to me. And I'm forever grateful to Barbara Kiesel who set me up with that um, arrangement. And uh, Mike and I hit it off and we had a great working relationship and it kind of, everything kind of grew out of that uh, for me. And, uh, you know, but so it feels to me like a very natural evolution from college campus publishing through Glimmer Train, through self-publishing into Dark Horse. And it was, in that way, it was kind of an easy path. And I think, for most people, when they say, "Well, how do you get a job in publishing?" It's like, "Man, I don't know," because it would be hard <laughs> to retrace my steps. Um, right. But everybody in publishing, everybody who works in these fields, um, has a unique story. You know, there's no there's no path that you can set yourself on, and if you just take the right steps, it's all going to happen for you. You got to kind of you got to kind of rely on luck and stupidity to just wind up in the right place.
0: Right. Right now you had mentioned uh glimmer train uh which is you know a well-known literary magazine uh what do you think is is the benefit for writers who were interested in submitting to and possibly being published by uh a literary magazine like glimmer train
1: so what's the advantage the advantage is getting published um Glimmer Train pays well for writers, so that's that's a huge advantage. But, um, but I'm not sure I understand your your question.
0: Well, in in terms of like authors who are sort of aspiring authors whose primary focus is novels, uh, you know, who want to get published, a novel published, who don't really think about literary magazines. Uh, what, in other words, for, for those writers, why, you know, there yeah, I'm just trying to throw out there what... You know, I, I they, get you.
1: Yeah, no, I get you. I think the thing is, like, you know, the the publishing industry is kind of harsh on short stories. And I think writers um, learn a lot and develop a lot from writing short stories. And I think also writers... Unfortunately, writers love short stories more than the audience necessarily does. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, like, the world needs Glimmer Train and story and, and books like that because... Um, because it creates a market for short stories which writers desperately want to write mm-hmm. and um you know so, so so glimmer train gives a home to these to these great writers who are focused on the short story which um you know you can't really you can't really break out with a short story collection like you've got to get your short stories published in anthologies, in and build up a um, a collection that somebody wants to publish. I mean, not to say that that, that never happens, but uh, right. but Glimmer Train gives a home to these great short stories. Um, so the advantage to the writers is just that writers, you know, you you were saying um, writers who want to write novels. Like,
2: mm-hmm. Well, writers
1: who want to write novels have a great advantage because publishers are way more interested in publishing novels. But the truth is, writers love to write short stories, and writers learn a lot from writing short stories. And you, you, you cut your teeth on that. And so, these literary magazines um, and and all sorts of different different outlets uh, give writers a place to get their short fiction out there. And short fiction is really important. Um, so, yeah, like like Glimmer Train and, and other books like it fill that spot for writers um, who need to do that work or are compelled to do that work
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh you know and for audiences glimmer train gives a particular kind of experience experience for the reader um in terms of his very you know like like mature and, and quiet and grown-up and and semi kind of academic approach to short fiction um you know they, they tend to publish a wide range of writers but it's a particular kind of writer that uh that has a real audience that have to go seek out books like this because you sure can't get them at the supermarket.
0: Right. Right. Um, now writing prose and, and writing comic books, they're obviously two very different mediums. Um, one being designed specifically for the reader, you know, in prose and the other meant really comic book writing meant more for an artist who then teams up and they bring this, the script to life for the reader. Um, what sort of of challenges and differences uh, are there in comic books that a writer from prose making that transition? If they were to you know be interested in possibly exploring that transition, what is is whether it's you know storytelling through paneling, even uh, dialogue length being able to fit in specific panels? What sort of advice would you have for that transition?
1: Um, you know, a, a prose writer making the transition from being a prose writer to being a comics writer is is probably just as well set up to make the transition from prose writer to concert violinist, Um, (laughs) you know, it's, it's a different art form. And, and there, and you know, the things you mentioned are, are very valid, but there's also other stuff like, um, just the, one of the things I've seen often with prose writers who want to go and write a comic, Mm -hmm. um, they come up with stories that are totally inappropriate for comics. Um, comics don't work as well with tons of backstory. Um, backstory can can come out so naturally and so beautifully and easily through prose. Um, it's easy to slip in and out of time when you're writing prose, and and it's just harder in comics, just like it's harder in film. There's ways to do it, and there's, Beautiful examples of people doing it, but it's not necessarily what the art form's really great at. Um, y- you know, a, a story that that takes place largely inside the character's head can be super effective for prose. Um, it's extremely effective in prose, and mm-hmm. it's not as effective in comics or in film. And there's there's as many differences between comics and film as there are between film and prose. But uh, but but yeah, there's all sorts of technical things that you mm-hmm. need to master in terms of uh, tackling comics, but there's also just like the whole way you look at story, the whole way that you approach story and plot um, Mm -hmm. needs to be pretty different between uh, comics and prose. Now, that's not to say that some prose writers aren't perfectly suited for comics.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, You know, there are prose novels that show that the writer has exactly what they need to get in there and write a comic. Um, It's just that, you know that that's um, that's just a a random coincidence. You know, I I mean I right. remember when I was in writing workshops in college, my writing professor um, was trying to criticize me. He was saying something negative, but even even when I try to recall what he said, I just can't think of it as negative because it didn't make me sad at all. You know, mm-hmm. he said um, he said, well, yeah, every story that Scott writes um, has like a really strong visual thrust to it. It always really relies on imagery, and he was saying that he was criticizing me, and I was like, I don't know, I'm I'm okay <laughs> with that. Like that's, you know, and and the thing is, the truth is, like, I think that's a thing in a prose writer, but it's also probably why I I don't think much about prose anymore, and I I really only think about comics is because I love a story that unfolds visually, whether it unfolds visually in prose or in mm-hmm. comics or in film or in you know dance um, but yeah there's there's things that are really really effective in, in prose that are pretty ineffective in comics just like there's things that that work better in you know in TV than in film etc mm-hmm. cetera, etc cetera. so i think like being mindful of what works in the art form is important you know it's it's the reason why like the, the uh the film adaptation of No Country for Old Men, if you've ever read the novel and watched the film mm-hmm. in close proximity, it's the exact same thing. It's like they just put the book on screen and it's really amazing because the the book was a film you know what i mean like mm-hmm. the the way it was written and McCarthy's stuff isn't usually like that, but the way no country was written it just. T- perfectly translated into a Coen Brothers movie, mm-hmm. whereas a lot of books, you've got to make it a completely new thing to get it on screen um, because it just wasn't suited to be turned into a, a visual, noisy item. Um, so, you know, grasping that, I mean, one of my early big influences was, was Alfred Hitchcock, and there's this great book where, where interviews Hitchcock, and um, they talk about craft in a really incredible way that showed me what these two brilliant filmmakers thought about the formal qualities of the film. And it got me thinking about comics in a similar kind of way. And it, and it it even revealed to me that part of why I loved Alan Moore and part of why I loved Mignola's work is because they're formalists about comics the same way that, that Hitchcock's a formalist of film. Right. And he's thinking about what the form achieves. Um, what, it, what the actual experience of watching a film is and what the best kinds of stories to tell on film are. And I think some artists, you know, they have the story that they need to tell and they tell it in the medium they're comfortable with. And other people have the medium that they're called to and then they tell the stories that are best told in that medium. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I guess I relate more to the latter.
0: Right. Right. Um, jumping back to Dark Horse, um, Dark Horse has one of the more open sort of submission systems, uh, accepting even submissions from solo writers, which is actually fairly rare. Uh, most of the time they want submissions of a specific project with an artist and writer in place. Uh, uh, can you maybe tell us a little bit about the submission process uh, at at uh, Dark Horse is like? I mean, who looks at submissions when they come in? Um, Uh, if you choose to develop a a, a potential script, um, how is the artist chosen and hired to work on it? Do you guys offer them choices or are they responsible for finding somebody? How how does that work?
1: It's, you know, one of the, one of the constants about Dark Horse is that Mm -hmm. every, everything's a unique case. Mm -hmm. Um, and so as far as the submission process goes, it's like, yeah, we have a pretty open submissions policy. Everything gets read. It takes forever because we don't have dedicated submission editors. We've mm-hmm. got two assistants that are responsible. Among their many responsibilities, they're responsible for going through the submissions. Right. And um, And they will eventually get through every submission. We don't reply to everything we get. Um, because we get so much, it would be a ridiculous amount of time to reply to everybody <laughs> right. but we reply um we try to re- reply constructively if we see something that we like but don't love, mm-hmm. and then obviously, if we love something, we go further with it um we don't pick up a lot of stuff through the total over the transom submission um window, but we do you know pick up some things and uh you know and we've had great experiences with finding really significant artists through the open submissions policy, Killian Plunkett who did a lot of great stuff for us and eventually went to Lucasfilm was somebody that we found in the slush pile Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and that happens. And when we have anthologies like dark horse presents running, um, that, that makes it easier to pull something out of the slush pile and say, Hey, let's just give this guy eight pages, you know, let's Mm -hmm. do this thing. So as far as a writer pitching something without an artist, um, you know, that guy is at a disadvantage Mm -hmm. uh, because he's pitching a visual medium with nothing visual attached. So he's at a disadvantage, but it gets read. And if it really catches, you know, if it catches the assistant editors, then they pass it on up the chain to one of the editors that they're working directly with um, or me or Mike or Randy. And, um, And then we'll read it, you know, one of us will read it, and if we love it, then we'll reach out to the guy or if we don't love it we might kick it back to the assistant and then they'll reach out to the guy to be encouraging and give him some feedback but to give him the bad news um if we decide to go for it there there's all manner of of ways to proceed you know if if one of the submissions editors was to throw me you know a uh, a three-parter for DHP that they thought looked great and that we should work with this person um I would I'd read it okay, they don't have an artist attached. I constantly have, you know, like a backlog of artists looking for work that I want to give stuff to.
2: Mm-hmm. And in
1: this case, an unknown writer, unknown property, doing a brand new thing to maybe doing DHP, what I'm probably going to do is go through the guys that I know that are on like sort of the the younger side of it, you know, artists who are not much more established than this writer who's come in over the transom. Right. Um, but, but an artist that I want to develop and I'll, you know, I'll put, I'll put the two of them together and I'll introduce them and see if we can work it out. And, you know, comics is an extremely collaborative medium, obviously, but, um, as an editor, a lot of the time I want to kind of provide a firewall between the writer and the artist. I Mm -hmm. don't believe in doing what Marvel and DC allegedly do, which is to not allow any contact. Mm. Um, I, I don't know if that's true anymore. I believe it was true in the past. Maybe it's true now. I don't know. But um, but the idea was that they didn't want the uh, the writers and artists to form allegiances that would you know rise up and destroy them somehow. But um, <laughs> but, it, but what I the reason I want to provide a firewall, I want them to I want them to interact and collaborate and talk and share ideas. But the the firewall that I try to provide and that most of us here try to provide is just that, you know, you want your collaborators to be happy with each other and to feel good about working together. And if all of a sudden by surprise, the writer starts, you know, uh, crapping on the work of the artist, right? You got to be the buffer and, or if the, or if the artist comes back, which happens on some of my books now, um, because it's an imperfect firewall. I've, I've had situations recently where the artist gets the script and it's maybe a work for hire job. The artist gets the script and replies with a ton of notes on the script that I already approved mm-hmm. and sends it directly to the art to the writer and says, "I don't think you know I don't think this story's working." And, um, you know, and that can get awkward as hell. So you want to try mm-hmm. to you want to try to provide that firewall and. To say, okay, actually, you know what? You're you're right, but let me reword it and let it come from me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm the bad guy because the editor can always be the bad guy because he's also the guy paying the vouchers. Sure. So I can be the bad guy, but if the but if your collaborator is giving you feedback that you're not super psyched to get, right? Then it, it really can interrupt the the um the creative process. So better that the that the editor, um. Bends some noses out of shape. Then, um, you know, then a writer who can't draw a straight line, um, telling an artist, "Ooh, that face looks kind of rough."
2: Mm-hmm, um,
1: mm-hmm. You know, like what? What are you? You know, and then he, he, I've seen it. You know, this is not theoretical. I've seen it <laughs> The right. to great ugliness and discord. And then you get a book that you can't really work on because the writer and the artist are just like, you know, either they hate each other or they're merely kind of pissy and passive aggressive with each other. Either way, it sucks, and Mm -hmm. you're 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 hurting. So, um, so yeah, I try to try to manage that interaction and make sure that all the 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 critiques are coming from over here. Right. I don't know if that answered a question. I don't know what just happened.
0: (laughs) It did, and I think you went back to another the earlier question. What are the biggest challenges you face as editor? I think it goes (laughs) to that. Yeah, that is a. Good answer to that one. Yeah, I think you answered two questions with that. Um, um, and, and just going back to something that uh, uh, seems to be a hot topic is e comics, sort of e books, same thing. Um, what's your take on e comics? Are they good for the industry or bad for the industry? Is it something that's just unavoidable? They're,
1: no, they're good for the industry um, and they're unavoidable. And they are not the magic bullet that is saving publishing. You Mm -hmm. know, I mean, like e-books and e-comics are having a varying effect. I think they're having a bigger effect, strangely. I think they're having a bigger effect in the world of prose Mm -hmm. um, than in comics. But I suspect it's an evolutionary thing. And eventually, like, the comic reader will evolve into an e-reader or the e-reader will, and, and I mean... Someone who reads electronically mm-hmm. will evolve more into a comic book reader, but right now it's just not a huge it's just not a huge piece of the puzzle um, th- direct market retailers the the retailers who are responsible for the creation of the comic book industry as it is today, mm-hmm. who are responsible for the vast majority of our sales and the lifeblood of our industry um, those guys were all freaking out when um when digital comics were becoming more and more of a thing, they were all uh, scared to death that this was the death knell of their industry. And the good news is that digital publishing is here and it hasn't had a huge effect on their business. Mm-hmm. Um, there's tons of data to support the idea that the, the the guy buying his comics on his iPad is a totally different guy than the one buying them on a, in a comic shop. And right. so... The best news there, well, the two best pieces of news is that it's not going to destroy the direct market, but also that there's a whole bunch of new readers sure um, and and so you know i'd love to see more and more people reading comics on iPads. Reading a comic on a phone is kind of miserable, <laughs> um, but reading it on an iPad is pretty amazing, like or I, I I assume other tablet devices right because the size of that screen is relatively close. Mm-hmm. to the size of a printed page of comics and the resolution is better at least on the iPad I don't know about the other ones um, better than a lot of our printing procedures are and the really cool thing about it is you know like oh art's an organic thing and, and you know like like having an art on a printed page is a really nice organic experience. It's like yeah but you know what you know how they color this stuff every single comic today almost <laughs> every single comic today is colored on the computer Right. and so you've got, you know, my buddy Dave Stewart sitting at his computer coloring these comics and taking all these pains to try to calibrate his computer. I mean, Dave, Dave's the, the, the best colorist in the industry, and um, I know what he goes through, and I know other colorists go through it. They set different calibrations, like, okay, I'm working on a dark horse book. I've got to calibrate my monitor to make it match basically what a Dark Horse book is going to print like.
2: Mm. But then when
1: he goes over to color a Marvel book, he has a different calibration for his monitor to try to match how a Marvel book is going to print. Uh But the truth is, we print our books at different places, and most of us print our pamphlets in the U.S. and our trade paperbacks in China. So Mm. there's no real way for Dave to perfectly tune his computer to match um, the printed page. But it's him sitting in front of a computer, a glowing computer screen all sure. day, coloring this stuff. So when you're sitting there reading your comic on your iPad, it's actually closer to his experience of coloring it than than it is when you sit and look at the printed page. Right. I'm a print guy. I love printed books. I love books. I love bookshelves. I've got too many bookshelves in my office, too many bookshelves at home. I love books. And I will always love books, but I've got to admit that there are advantages to reading comics on um, uh, you know on a tablet or on mm-hmm. a computer screen because it's a little bit closer to the experience of the guy that was actually you know putting the pages together
0: right, right
1: in in most or at least many cases.:
0: Sure. Um, now, I like to ask writers this, uh, but being an editor as well, uh, you, you you might actually have a unique sort of take on it. Uh, being both. Um but maybe do you have a few pieces of advice for aspiring writers, any sort of tips, techniques or insights that you've learned uh, through your time that you're willing to share?
1: Um I do I do um little like teaching things once in a while. So I've kind mm-hmm. of got a lot, but I've I've got it um I've got it all kind of worked out in my head and it's not fresh right now. <laughs> I mean there's so many things to think about. There's a lot of real like Simple, straightforward, boring stuff like, um, you know, like like sticking to a, a you know a relatively small number of panels per page, like like five or six panels per page, kind of always works.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if you're if you're doing an action scene, use fewer panels per page rather than the opposite. I I know a lot of TV writers um, that uh, I know a lot of TV writers and film writers that I work with. Their instinct is, oh, if it's an action scene, let's do more panels per page, right? Because it'll it'll make it feel like it's moving faster, and you'll get small panels like you get small, short cuts in mm-hmm. an action scene in a film. And it actually works conversely. If you if you put a lot of panels on the page, it mm-hmm. slows it down. Right. A lot of panels on the page, they're all smaller, and so they lack impact. So it doesn't feel like action. Whereas you know my advice is if you've got if you're averaging five panels a page and you want to speed up the pace and make it feel really impactful and full of action, then you lower your panel count if you've got a boring talking scene, then maybe up your panel count a little bit and you can um you know you can get more of the talking out of the way uh using up less real estate so stuff like that you know like try to think like an artist, really understand what you're asking an art an artist to draw um And by that, I mean an artist can't draw sequential moments in a single panel. Like you can't draw, there's ways to do it, but for the most part, an artist can't really draw a panel where a guy jumps out of the car, picks up a gun and starts shooting. That's Mm -hmm. not one panel. That's like maybe three panels. Um, and, and writers make that mistake all the time. Um, and, you know there's a great book that, there's a book i really love it's called on directing film by david mamet but if you read it it's really more about writing for film mm-hmm. and it's one textbook that i would say applies really well to comics i generally don't want everybody reading books about film and thinking they can apply it all to comics right. but on directing film applies to comics really nicely and part of it is that mamet talks a lot about the uninflected image and um you know he 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 poses the opinion that you can't you know you can't shoot uh, you can't shoot a shot of a guy looking sadly out the window thinking about his mother you can shoot a, a guy looking out the window and maybe you can accomplish sadly but you can't shoot thinking about his mother mm-hmm. but what you can do is you can you know you can show him looking at a photo of a woman with a boy and clearly it's an old photo and then he looks out the window and it's raining and he's staring out the window for a long time and then you kind of get that it's probably his mother and probably he's sad and you know the the juxtaposition of the images tells it but i get a lot of comic scripts where the panel description tells the artist what the guy is thinking about
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and the artist can't draw that now sometimes (laughs) the reader doesn't need to know what the guy's thinking about and that information is really just informative and directional for the artist and mm-hmm. that's great but many times I'll be reading a script and I'll realize that stuff in the panel descriptions that can't be drawn is essential information for the reader that they're not going to get because the writer's not doing his job properly right so you know don't ask an artist to draw something that he can't draw and if it's information the reader needs, figure out actual narrative ways to get it there. And I'm not saying don't be subtle. I'm not saying don't be understated. But, um, you know, there's a phrase I think I got from my buddy Lee Purvis. Uh, you got to have it on the page. It has to be on the page. Um, if it's just in your head, if it's just in the script. You know, one of the, one of the things he said, I can't remember if it was in the interview or when we talked before the interview, was that a prose writer – Writes a story, and that's a, that's the story. That's the experience. Right. A comic book writer writes a script, which is just information for the artist to do the actual artistic experience. Um, you know, a script is just a blueprint. It's not the building itself. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that's true. But it needs to be the, it needs to effectively communicate to the um, to the artist what he needs to get across. Because what's in the script that doesn't actually make it onto the printed page doesn't matter. It doesn't exist.
0: Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, great. So the, the way we like to, to sort of come to a conclusion on our show is a quick section we call Rapid Fire. It's just six sort of either or questions. Um, so uh, coffee, tea, or Red Bull? Coffee. Uh, better horse, secretariat, or war admiral? War Admiral. Um, Better album, Nickelback's Dark Horse or George Harrison's The Best of Dark Horse?
1: George Harrison.
0: (laughs) Um, uh, Better monster, Frankenstein or The Creature from the Black Lagoon? Frankenstein. Who'd win in a water balloon fight, Conan or Hellboy?
1: Ooh, jeez. Water balloon fight. I think Hellboy.
0: Uh, and then lastly, better vampire hunter, Buffy or Van Helsing? Buffy. Cool. Um, that's all the time we have. Uh, thanks again for joining me today, Scott. I really appreciate it. Um, okay, thank you. Uh, be sure to visit darkhorse.com and check out Scott's website at Scott, ecom And you can follow Scott on Twitter at scottalley uh, and for more information on the show, please visit our website at scriptsandscribes.com. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening.